Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Everybody, we're going to take a bite of the Big Apple with a guy who knows something about New York sports. One of the great columnists for the New York Post, he's Steve Serby. Uh, Steve, it dawns on me that you remember the the um, uh, the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame. Yep, I do. Well, now you got yourself, Mike Vaccaro, Mark Canizero, and Ian O'Connor. So you're the Four Horsemen of the Post. Well, we've got more. I appreciate the compliment, but we've got more than four horsemen. We've got probably about 20 horsemen and women, <laughs> um, if I must say so myself. Easily easily the best sports section, uh, uh, I believe, in America. And, uh, I don't mean to sound uh, uh, cocky or anything, or but I, I really believe it's the best sports section in America. Could be. I mean, you know, who's going to argue? Look, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, and I remember uh, my father would send me down to the corner uh, candy store to pick up the the old New York Daily Mirror and the Post, uh, the uh, New York News, at night. But the, the Post didn't come out until the afternoon the next day, so we had to wait. But that was then, yeah. and this is now. But the one thing that I remember growing up in Brooklyn was, I mean, we're talking about sports columnists like Dick Young and Jimmy Cannon and Dave Anderson of the Times and uh, Leonard Lewin, if you remember him, and countless others. So New York has got a history of great sports reporters. So <laughs> you guys are right in there with some of the best of all time. Well, when I, uh, when I first started out, we had Paul Zimmerman covering, uh, <clears throat> covering the Jets and, and the NFL. And we had Vic Beagle, you may recall. Yep. Uh, Larry Merchant. Uh, Gene Roswell covered the Giants. Um, uh, who else was there? Uh, yeah, Leonard Lewin, of course, for yep. the Knicks. Uh, uh, Leonard Bromberg covered uh, boxing. Um, yeah, it, it was uh, it was quite quite a cast even then. Ike Ellis was a sports editor, then followed by uh, Greg Gallo and Jerry Lister when Rupert Murdoch took over, and. Uh, We've been passing the baton ever since, I guess. Uh, you came to the Post in 1972. Um, so what was your first assignment that you remember? 1972? Boy, I must be old. Yeah, we both uh, are. <laughs> uh, my first assignment was a, uh, a a young tennis player. I think it, I forget. I, I, I hate to butcher his name, but it was a, it, it was a young tennis player. Back then, we... Uh, we had writing tryouts. There were three of us, as I recall, vying for one position, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to win out. But when I started at the Post, uh, my first week I spent as a copy boy, wheeling newspapers through the city room, uh, through the newsroom. Then uh, one week later, they promoted me to uh, radio, television, and museum listing. 
uh, host, radio host who called in was Marv Alps. And uh, Marv, as you know, just uh, announced his retirement after 55 years uh, on the air, and he'll be sorely missed. He was one of a kind. And uh, But Marv actually knew that I had gone to school with his younger brother, Al Albert, and <clears throat> asked me uh, if I was interested in, in sports. I said, yeah, of course. And Marv, because Marv is one of the nicest people I've ever met, spoke to the sports editor and helped get me across the hall into the sports department. So I'll, I'll, I'll forever be indebted to Marv Albert for that. Well, there's still an Albert on the air. I happened to catch uh, his son Kenny last night doing the hockey game. He's very good, isn't he? Very. Yeah. Plus the fact, you know, he's he's really a good guy, uh, and he's look. He grew up. If you remember, Fox had promoted Kenny, uh, uh, Joe Buck, and uh, and Brenneman, um, uh, the the son of Marty Brenneman. They all came at yeah. the same time. They all came up at the same time, and people thought, well, they're just because they're the sons of great sportscasters, that's why they got the chance. Well, if you hear them all, particularly you know, Joe Buck has achieved an awful lot, and so has Kenny over the course of time. So it's not about nepotism. It's about uh, being qualified to do the job. Yeah, and, and you know, Kenny worked as hard uh, and very like the way Marv worked and uh, some people are just naturals, and Kenny has the same passion for his job that Marv had for his, even all the way to the very end. And uh, it, it was it was a really nice tribute that TNT gave Marv. And uh, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, the Garden didn't give uh, Marv the tribute he deserved when he broadcast his last game there. But Marv told me he was not surprised uh, because uh, he and James Dolan had philosophical differences about how a game should be broadcast. Marv uh, believes it should be done objectively, and uh, James Dolan was was not on board with that, unfortunately. Well, it, it's disappointing because I mean the guy's been involved with Madison Square Garden from the first time we heard him talk about Willis Reed limping out onto the floor on May eighth, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, I mean, he's been part of the history of Madison Square Garden. It's it's kind of small uh, that Dolan would, would react that way and not give him his just due. But, you know, I mean, here we are talking about it. We both know what, what's right and what's wrong, but it's not going to make any impression on Dolan. Uh, let's talk about um, one of the articles you read I was particularly interested in uh, within the last week. You talked about the Subway Series uh, between the Yankees and the Mets and... Uh, the, we're talking about a Yankee franchise right now. That I think they've dropped five of the last seven ball games. If George Steinbrenner was still alive today, how long before he would make a drastic move one way or the other? Well, Billy Martin would be managing right now. Uh, that goes without saying. Um, oh, yeah, George would have done something, some for better or for worse, and sometimes it was for worse. Um, but. Now is not the time to fire people. I'm sorry. Um, Brian Cashman uh, has been a fixture there. Hal Steinbrenner has great respect for him, as well he should. Now, Cashman, has Cashman made mistakes? Sure he has. He gambled on uh, uh, his pitching staff with uh, Corey Kluber and Jamison Tyone, both 
of whom were uh, injury risk. And uh, aside from Kluber's no-hitter, uh, it was a risk that hasn't paid off. And, and uh, obviously Tanaka uh, was let go. Um, and Luis Severino, they're still waiting for. Right. So, and, and, and of course, Araldis Chaplin, the Chapman has uh, imploded uh, recently, and that doesn't help either. So, you know, when the team is on a, I think they've lost six of eight, when the, when the team is going like this, and expectations are as high as they are, people want their pound of flesh. But Al Steinbrenner is smart enough not to make any knee-jerk moves. Uh, at the end of the season, that's another story. I, I, I don't think Brian Cashman's going anywhere, uh, nor do I think he should. Uh, he knows knows how to build a team. He knows how to build a winning team, and he knows he knows the market. He knows how to behave and to conduct himself in the market, and uh, he doesn't blink. Um, now Aaron Boone, after all these after three years of knocking on the door and with these high sky high expectations he may be in some trouble after the year if the Yankees don't make the playoffs I think if you I think he has to make the playoffs I think if he does make the playoffs I don't think he'll be fired Let's go back to uh, talking with Steve yeah. Serby of the New York Post let's go back to what you about Araldus Chapman. Uh, he's imploded, obviously, as you mentioned. I think the last nine games, his ERA is over 20. Uh, but get to that to that end, I mean, the Yankees were off yesterday. But the last time I watched the Yankees, the day before, Chad Green was impressive. And I'm wondering why they don't make a move and put Chad Green in the closer role. Uh, well, I, because they like him in the role he's in. And who knows Who knows if he can handle the, the closer role. That's you know, that's a different uh, animal when you're pitching the ninth inning. And this team was built for Araldus Chapman to be the closer. And look look how dominant he was early in the year. So, you know, I, I, obviously if, it, if this continues, they're going to have to do something. But I think they're going to give every chance, Ed Chapman every chance, and they should, to rediscover his form that he displayed early in the season. Now... If he doesn't, then yeah, then uh, then maybe Chad Green will. Uh, maybe they'll take their chances with Chad Green in the in, in the ninth inning. But again, that ninth inning is a different a different mindset, a different mentality mm-hmm. to be a, than it is than the eighth inning. No, I would agree. He's Steve Serby, the great columnist from the New York Post. Um, let's um, look at it from the perspective of where they are in relation to their most bitter rival, and that's obviously the Boston Red Sox. So the Yankees have, I think, six games on the road coming up between Seattle and Houston, and then they come home and face the Red Sox in a four-game series. Uh, it's, I mean, it, is it too soon to say this is a defining two weeks for the Yankees? Um, I, I think at this point, every every two weeks is a Every week is a defining week for the Yankees at this point. Uh, they, they have to go on some kind of run. The teams ahead of them are not chopped liver. And uh, they, they have to look in the mirror and decide who they are and who they want to be. And, um, you know, they can't get swept at home again by the Red Sox. If they get swept at home, uh, you could probably 
history of baseball is littered with teams that came back from double-digit deficits with more time to play than there is now, uh, and, and the 78 Yankees, of course, being one of them. But but they're playing with fire if they don't start getting on some kind of roll here. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's really no excuses for them. I'm expecting Brian Cashman to do something before between now and the trade deadline because he's got to shake he's got to shake things up. I mean, they have to. Uh, you know, Odor was a good signing uh, early in the year. They need another guy like that, uh, a firebrand kind of guy um, who can who can help ignite a fire inside a clubhouse that looks like it's lifeless at this point. But of course, when you're when you're losing the way the Yankees are losing and you're not hitting the way the Yankees are not hitting. A team looks lifeless on the field, but that doesn't. We know they're they're lacking in athleticism, um, and we know there's a big deal around the league about whether they're too reliant on analytics. Well, the problem with the Yankees a couple of years ago was when the Red Sox won the series was the Red Sox were better, much better at situational hitting. And that's why the Yankees, one of the reasons why the Yankees signed D.J. LeMayhew. Now, even LeMayhew has been dragged down by this malaise. He's not hes not the machine right now. Um, but they need another hitter like, like LeMayhew, and they need another spark plug like Odor. And I expect Brian Cashman to make some kind of move to shake things up. Steve Serby of the New York Post. It's interesting because... Over the last several years, I've become friendly with Dale Murphy, the one-time great for the Atlanta Braves, who won back-to-back MVPs and is still not in the Hall of Fame, which is a subject for another day. Uh, but back in the beginning of the year, Dale Murphy's assessment of the Yankees was he didn't like them because they had too many hitters that were either home runs or strikeouts. And there wasn't enough LeMayu-type hitters, singles and doubles hitters, an occasional home run, but hit for a high average. And so... Uh, his uh, his assessment of the Yankees back then was was right on the money. But then again, why wouldn't he know anything about baseball, right? Uh, look, I what makes it worse, aside from the fact that the Red Sox are in first place, the Mets are doing well. Uh, and everybody's talking about Jacob deGrom and what a phenomenal pitcher he is. Uh, do you think that the Yankees pay any attention at all to what the Mets are doing, or is it strictly about the Red Sox? Well... I, I think um, it's like it's, it's the Red Sox and the, and the Rays uh, more so than the than the Mets. Um, but I think it's it's more exhilarating for Mets and Mets the Mets and Mets fans uh, than it is depressing for the Yankees fans that the Mets are doing so well uh, under their new owner Steve Cohen. But uh, you know I, the Yankees can't afford to keep an eye on the Mets. So they they have all the problems they need trying to chase the Red Sox and the Rays uh, and get it and get and get if they don't win a division which it looks like they won't get get into the playoffs somehow some way and, and you know part of the problem with the Yankees also is guys like they were counting on you know we hear all the time about well look at the back of their baseball card but Glaber Torres has been a tremendous disappointment in the field and at the plate, mm-hmm. uh, especially at the plate. Here's a 24-year-old kid who's being destined for stardom, and he, he looks lost. 
And then there's Clint Frazier, who also who has vertical right now, but has also looked lost and, and can, is no longer a trade asset uh, around the league. So there's two guys, two big bats, that have drastically underachieved. And then, of course, you lose Aaron Hicks at the start of the year. And Brett Gardner, who was designed for a reserve bench role, has been forced to play more than the Yankees want him to play. And, uh, and, and then, you add, then you factor that in with their pitching problems. And even Garrett Cole has been bitten by the uh, the spin doctor uh, bug, right. apparently. Uh, so that's why you have a team in crisis right now, barely barely above 500. So, yeah, it, 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 if you're a Yankee fan right now, you're pulling your hair out, as well you should, because this team uh, professed its hunger at the in spring training that they were on a mission to win that world championship that they haven't won since 2009. And uh, where's the hunger? I think the Yankee fans want to see where the hunger is. And other than Aaron Judge and, and a bounce-back season from Gary Sanchez, uh, where is it? Let's see it. It's time to see it. Steve Serby, columnist for the New York Post. Uh, you're also and have been very much involved with the uh, New York Jets and and their uh, problems that they've had. Uh, I mean, was it been like 53 years since they've won a title? But that aside, it seems to me that with the draft and the drafting of Zach Wilson, that inspired a lot of conversation. And anybody I've talked to that's been on the jet beat, whether it's Rich Cimini or Mark Canizero or Brian Costello or any of them, there's like a divide about should they have traded Sam Donald? Should they have not traded Sam Donald? The fact of the matter is, and this is a bad joke on, on somebody, the opening game of the season, who do the Jets play but Carolina with former quarterback Sam Donald? So the question is not about was it a right move or the wrong move. We'll have to wait and see how it all develops. But the fact of the matter is that Joe Douglas, the general manager, I would say all of the moves he's made, whether the draft or free agency, have been designed with helping Zach Wilson by giving him some more weapons. Well, yeah, if you remember, though, um, he began helping Sam Darnold. He had made a promise, Douglas had made a promise to Sam Darnold's parents that he would protect him. And first-round pick two years in 2020 was Makai Becton, the left tackle. Um, and he also got him a playmaker who hardly saw the field in Denzel Mims. So he just continued building around his next quarterback by bringing in Corey Davis, by bringing in, by drafting uh, Vera Tucker, the left guard, by recently signing Morgan Moses, right tackle, so uh, and, and drafting uh, Elijah Moore in the second round, who they absolutely love uh, so far. Uh, in, in the OTAs and the minicamp. So if Darnold was still the quarterback, and I agree with the move to start over, to reset the financial clock at quarterback, especially if you have a guy 
that you think can be a star. Uh, I agree with the move. So Douglas has continued doing what he began doing when Darnold was his quarterback. Playmakers and protectors. Let's add to that, um, well, depending on which Michael Carter you're talking about, is Michael Carter the running back or Michael Carter the defensive back. But um, another trait that, I, that I'm sensing, and I'm wondering if you are as well, and you mentioned Elijah Moore, and you're right, they seem to be raving about this kid. But almost every move they made in the draft uh, was built around speed. Look, nobody goes from two wins to winning a championship. Nobody goes from two wins to, to double-digit wins. So, the, I mean, based on Las Vegas odds, the over and under for the Jets, I think, is six and a half. You taking the over or the under, and let's just say they win six games. At least that would be an improvement, and at least send a message to the LSJF, the long-suffering Jet fans, that at least there's some positives on the horizon. I, oh, I'm, I'm sure, first of all, they have more talent than they did a year ago, and they have better coaching than they did a year ago. Um, so, I, I, I'm, you know, don't forget there's a 17th game, so six wins would be 11 losses, uh, which is nothing to write home about. And don't forget the division is, is not easy. Bill Belichick has reloaded in New England. Uh, Buffalo is the reigning champion, and Josh Allen is up for a monster new contract. And Miami, this is year three of uh, Brian Flores' uh, tenure. So uh, the Jets are destined to finish last. They'll be competitive. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to uh, – I have to study some more tape before I give you an over-under number. Right now I'm going with six and a half wins. Okay, that's fair. He's Steve Serby, the columnist for the New York Post. When you first, that was a joke. I apologize. You're right. It is, and usually I pick up a joke right away. But I was thinking ahead a little bit too far, so I tip my hat to you. It's a good line. Usually I have to, I have to explain most of my jokes, unfortunately. <laughs> but 
you've been you, you've been uh, you've seen the Jets uh, you know, during the the Parcells era, where, where I was calling Jet games at that time, where they were not only relative. I thought in '98 when they when they lost the AFC Championship game in Denver after having a ten point lead. Uh, and and hey, wait, let me let me interrupt. Let me interrupt. Can I interrupt you for a minute? Yeah, go ahead. You, you got to know Parcells well, right? The, still. Which one? The one about the, you want me to cook the meal, but you might have to shop for the groceries? No, no, not that one. Just, just from dealing with him. Oh, um, uh, the, uh, guy, the, the guy, the guy, he's not going to Canton uh, just to just yet. Uh, uh, I mean, he's got. Look, the one thing I do remember, Steve, in being around Parcells and and that, doing his coaches show, which where I saw him on a weekly basis in the studio. And this is, I'll go back to 83, his first year, which was a disaster. And he was very honest with me about the problems he was having. Uh, he knew that, that, uh, that the General George Young was, was shopping his job to Howard Schnellenberger. And he lied about it, Young did. But Parcells has, as you well know, has got friends in the FBI who told him they saw him at a Miami restaurant in the middle of the... Of the of the middle of a 90 degree day wearing a trench coat. <laughs> and, they, and he told him that, yeah, Howard Schnellenberger was having lunch with George Young. So look, they shopped his job. He came close to getting fired. The fact is, I guess one of the Maras stuck up for him. And, and of course, the next season, he turned it around a little bit and they won 500. But Parcells, to me, he is one of the I'm going to say one of the five people that have crossed my path that have made an impact on me. Chuck Daly was one. Uh, the great Pelé was one when he was with the Cosmos in New York. Uh, Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, who I had a great chance to interview once, and uh, a general that I worked for when I was in the United States Air Force named Chappie James. These are the guys who made an impact on me. But Parcells, look, he, he was... Uh, he was a guy that was, uh, he was the tuna to the defensive players. And then when he became the head coach, all of a sudden now, and you remember this, Steve, he, he had designated lieutenants. It was Phil Sims on the offense. It was, uh, I'm going to say it was, it wasn't Lawrence Taylor on the defense, but no, it was Harry, Carson. Harry Carson. You're right. You're right. It was Harry Carson. And that's the way that he, that's the way he ran things, uh, like a general. But Bill, Bill uh, when I went into the locker room after that 98 loss in Denver, I'm going to tell you he had tears in his eyes. He had tears in his eyes because his players, his guys, as he always referred to them, let him down by fumbling in the, in the second half. That cost yeah, him the game. He fires Kurt Martin, I believe. Yep. And, oh, and uh, I think Dave Meggett also fumbled, right? Yeah, well, that was the opening kickoff of the third quarter. And if you remember, the wind was blowing away from Meggett. So he, he reached out with hands only trying to catch the ball, and he dropped it and, and couldn't make the play. And then Denver wound up scoring on that ensuing drive and closed the gap from 10 nothing to 10-7. But I remember working games a couple of years later with Dan Reeves. And I said to Reeves, I don't care what you say, Dan. A uh, coach, I called him, not Dan. I said the Jets were the best team personnel-wise of the four teams that got that far between Minnesota, Atlanta, Denver, and the Jets. I thought they had the best oh, personnel. Yeah, yeah. That, that's why that's one of the re a big reason why 
Parcells was so devastated after that loss because they they just would have won the Super Bowl that year. I'm 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 totally convinced of that. And um, against Atlanta, um, and I remember him after the game sitting uh, uh, on a at a podium behind a table talking about how how tough it is to get back to where the Jets had just been, the AFC Championship game. And I believe next, the next spring, next summer, I believe uh, some of the Jets were wearing T-shirts that read, Start Over, as I recall. And and un- unfortunately, when they, uh, the opening day of 99, you remember, Vinny yep. Testaverde yep. ruptures his Achilles, and there went the season, and there went Bill Parcells' third and final year with the Jets. The next year, he went into the front office and uh, passed the baton to Bill Belichick, and that lasted 24 hours. Uh, I don't know if you were in the office that day, but I happened to run into Steve Gutman. Uh, he, he, he handed me something. And I said, what's this? And it was a napkin. And it was Bill Belichick's resignation as the HC of the NYJ. I saw that note, kept, and I went, you, you got it. Huh? I don't think Gutman was giving it up. <laughs> wow, I think you were at that press conference. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it was. Look, was it shocking? Of course, it was shocking. But because we all thought that he was going to be the guy, and then of course, then started the whole thing with the Patriots and the Jets and all of that. Before I let you go, Steve, I understand in reading your bio that you, your childhood hero is Mickey Mantle. Is that true? Uh, Mickey, yeah, Mickey Mantle was one. Uh, you know, I thought I'd be. Uh, the next switch hitting home run hitter for the Yankees. And I also, um, Floyd Patterson was another one. Really? I loved Floyd. I loved, I was devastated when Sonny Liston knocked him out both times. Uh, I just, I, I loved Patterson. He was an undersized, humble guy. And um, for some reason, he was my guy too. Who was uh, starting out in, in sports writing? Who was, did you have a mentor? Um, well, I, my, my father used to work in the garment district and he would bring home the post every day. So as soon as he walked in the door, um, he brought, had the post with him and I gobbled up the post. I grew up in Long Island reading Newsday. So I, you know, I, I mean, I love Paul Zimmerman. I love Vic Beagle. I love uh, Larry Merchant. I love Joe Gergen with Newsday. Um, Steve Jacobson, um, who else? Um, yeah, those were the guys. Um, Eagle, Zimmerman, yeah, the, the Post. Even back in those days, I always thought the Post was the best. Well, I, uh, t- my guy was Dave Anderson. I thought the world of him as a writer and as a guy. Uh, one of the... Oh, what a true gentleman. True yep, gentleman. no question about it. I thought he was a tremendous individual, and I loved sitting and talking to him in press rooms before games. And believe you know what they always say, that you learn something new every day? No matter when you sat down with Anderson, you learned something. Yep, and he was willing to share all the time. Well, that's because he, he, he was a class individual. Steve, I really appreciate your time. Thanks a million. Keep up the great work and stay safe. You too. Thank you, Howard. Appreciate it. Thank you.
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.